So today, we're going to be studying John chapter 1. If you don't already have your Bible there, go ahead and turn there. Uh, We're going to be reading this in our reading plan tomorrow. And, And I want to talk about John 1 because it sets up the book of John, the gospel of John. So, well, I titled this message, Seven Powerful Principles from John 1. Um, I'm going to tell you in a little bit what I should have titled this message, but we'll get to that. Uh, God gave me something while we were singing. I was like, I'm such an idiot. Uh, it's amazing how God speaks. His Holy Spirit speaks in worship. And I'm like, oh, I missed a great title. So we'll retitle it that for the podcast. But for your sake, uh, this morning is Seven Powerful Principles from John chapter 1. John is my favorite gospel. John has always been my favorite gospel. John is different. If you've been doing the reading plan with us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have different perspectives, but they tell very similar stories. Uh, You see Jesus doing a lot of the same things, experiencing a lot of the same things, saying a lot of the same things. We call Matthew, Mark, and John the synoptic gospels. They they flow together. Uh, They were each written, we believe, much earlier than John was. Bible scholars believe John is uh, by far the latest latest of the Gospels that was written. They're going to put the date somewhere between A.D. 70 and A.D. 100. They believe John wrote this while he was a a church leader in the city of Ephesus, to which Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. Uh, And so this is before Paul is arrested and exiled to the island of Patmos. It's before the Revelation, which of course is the final book of the New Testament. But John has a really unique perspective. Uh, John shares some things with us that the other disciples don't. John, if you're familiar, you probably are. John had a really unique relationship with Jesus. There, there, There was a bond between them. Many Bible scholars believe that John was the youngest of the disciples. Uh, Some believe he was actually by far the youngest of the disciples, possibly even a teenager, Uh, and that Jesus kind of looked out for John as the youngest, uh, that there was some connection there because he was so much younger than the other disciples. John's gonna refer to him throughout this gospel to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There, There was a deep bond and connection there. Now, the reality is each of the disciples Jesus loved, right? Like Jesus loves each of us, and and he loves all of us far beyond what we deserve. Um, But John has has a really unique perspective on who Jesus is. In fact, each of the gospel writers wrote with different purposes to tell us different things, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what we're going to do today uh, is we're going to read through the first 14 verses of John chapter 1 together. Uh, So we're going to get a a head start, uh, a little preview in what we'll be doing tomorrow in the reading plan. We'll read the first 14 verses. We'll pull five of our powerful principles from these first 14. Then I'm going to skip forward and show you a couple other things in John chapter 1 that I think are really important for us to highlight. Last week, we talked about the power of beginnings, uh, right? That, that there's, there's power in beginnings. We looked at Matthew, uh, and, and Matthew showed us in the very beginning of the New Testament, the very beginning of his gospel, the genealogy of Jesus. It traced Jesus all the way back to King David. Matthew was presenting a specific portrait of who Jesus was. What, what we see, what Bible scholars teach, is that each of the gospels give us a different face of Jesus, a different portrait of Jesus, and we'll dig into what each of those are in just a minute. But begin reading with me Uh, in John 1. It says very famously, in the beginning was the word. Everybody say word. Word. 
In the beginning was the word. Some of you put some, some flavor on that word. Uh, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Notice that the word, word, which in the Greek is logos, pops up three times in the first verse. The word God pops up twice in the first verse. We see some themes beginning to emerge at the very beginning. This is almost a thesis statement. Some of you just had some PTSD when I said that phrase, going back to English class. Um, but, but he's declaring, this is where we're going. We're going to talk about the word, and we're going to talk about how the word is God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, him being Jesus, him being the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is where we get the theology of Jesus as creator. The Old Testament just tells us that God created, but John teaches us that Jesus was actually the part of the Godhead who spoke. He is the word, right? We see in the creation story that God speaks. In fact, I believe it's 80 times in the book of Genesis in the first three chapters it says, and then God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. Well, John says this is the God who was speaking. Jesus is the God who is speaking out creation. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that was made. In him was life. Everybody say life. Life, life is another theme we'll see repeat throughout the book of John. John is all about life. And he said, and that life was the light of all mankind. Everybody say light. Light, light is another theme that will pop up in the book of John. John is an excellent writer. John has a, an excellent ability to foreshadow where he's going from the very beginning of his gospel. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Awesome, awesome first paragraph to this first chapter of my favorite gospel. John starts differently. It's funny that John's my favorite gospel because John, unlike Matthew and Luke, talks nothing about Jesus as a baby, talks nothing about Christmas, and I'm a Christmas sucker, right? I love Christmas. I love everything about it, and yet there's something about John's gospel that, that transcends for me, that, that gives us a picture of Jesus that is so rich and so deep and so full. It's not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not important. They're extremely important. It's the reason why we've been reading through them the last seven days. Uh, but John gives us something different, something more. I believe the Bible would be very incomplete without the book of John. So today I want to give you seven powerful principles from John chapter 1. We'll start right here in this first paragraph and pull out a few of them. Number one is this. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the the word. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. That Greek word there is logos. Logos literally means reason, idea, or word. So in the beginning was the word. This is this declaration he's making. What is John doing? He's declaring Jesus as God from the beginning. In fact, he says it right there in the first verse. The word was God. So Jesus is the word. John's declaring for us Jesus is God. I said that each of the gospels gave a different portrait of Jesus. Let's talk about those for just a second. Matthew gives us a picture, a portrait of Jesus as king. If you read the book of Matthew this last week, you noticed that the kingdom is a really big theme in the book of Matthew. It talks a lot about the kingdom. Matthew starts, we said his genealogy traces Jesus all the way back to David. Why does he go back to David? Because he's declaring, is establishing that Jesus 
is the king. Mark has a different perspective. Mark gives us a picture of Jesus as servant. Now, Mark's gospel, by the way, which you hopefully just read, uh, Mark was not a personal eyewitness to most of the events he recorded. He, he was actually there for some of them. He actually talks about himself in his gospel at one small point. But most of what he's recording for us is not his perspective. Mark became a disciple, a student of Peter. And so the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. It's Peter's account of Jesus that is recorded for us by Mark. And so Peter, I think it's really interesting that he gives us this picture of Jesus the servant, right? Because Peter was the one who, who was most valiant. He was the one who, who was most aggressive. Man, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to cut somebody's ear off for you, right? And, and finally, when it clicked, he got it. He says, Jesus is a servant, he came to serve us, and we're called to serve just as he served. So Mark gives us a picture of Jesus as servant. Luke, on the other hand, gives us a picture of Jesus as a man. Now, for us, this seems kind of duh, right? Like kind of obvious, like he was the man. Uh, at the first century, this was a really important thing to declare about Jesus. In fact, this was more controversial than declaring Jesus as God, was declaring Jesus as a man. Uh, at least among Christian circles. There were Christian circles, there were groups of Christians or, or people who kind of wanted to buy into Jesus that said, I can believe him as God, but he wasn't really a man. He didn't experience what we experienced. He didn't really suffer like we suffered. He was just coming to teach us something. And so Luke's gospel declares Jesus as man. You may have noticed in the book of Luke, he calls Jesus the son of man rather than the son of God. May seem interesting, but he's establishing for us that Jesus can relate to us. That Jesus has gone through the stuff that we've gone through, that he's been tempted, right? Luke gives us the greatest account of Jesus' temptation. Why? Because he's showing his humanity. John, on the other hand, comes in and gives us his divinity. John presents for us Jesus as God. Each of these perspectives are correct. Each of them are important. We don't pick and choose one or the other all of them make up the king who we serve, the God who created us, the man who modeled things for us, the servant who calls us to serve, right? So each of these perspectives is key, but John's going to teach us that Jesus is God. Over and over again, he's going to demonstrate this for us. He's the word. The word is God. Years ago, I, I heard an illustration, and I can't verify for you that this ever actually happened or not, but it's a great illustration whether it did or not. So allegedly, there was a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher asked the class, why does God's word call Jesus the word? Why, why Lagos? Why would John declare Jesus the word? And this girl pops up in the Sunday school class, and she said, because Jesus is everything God wanted to say to us. I don't know if that literally ever happened or not, but I think that answer is correct. Why is Jesus the word? Because he's everything God wanted to teach us. He's everything he wanted to say to us. Jesus is the word. He is logos. So that's the first powerful principle we find in John 1. The second one is this, is that Jesus was before the beginning. I love this one because this trips me out. Right? Like some people do drugs, I read John. Right? Like, like this, this will mess with your head. He was before the beginning. How does that even happen? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Okay, so he was 
there at the beginning. Why do you say he was before the beginning? Well, this same author, John, is going to have a vision of Jesus a little bit later on called Revelation, and he's going to record that vision for us. And in Revelation, Jesus declares to John, he doesn't just say, I was there at the beginning. He says, I am the beginning. Right? So if we have our beginning, Genesis traces the the, the beginning of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John 1 starts very similarly to Genesis 1, but he's declaring that even before that beginning, Jesus was the beginning. He was there at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. Why is it important he was there before the beginning? Because Jesus is before everything. He's before everything you go through. He's before every struggle you face. He's before every pain you deal with. He is before, years ago I taught a message about two aspects of Jesus, two characteristics of Jesus, his firstness. That Jesus is first, and his firstness implies for us that he's more, right? If you're first at something, there's going to be some football games this afternoon. Who, the team that wins is going to be the team that scores more points, right? We all understand that. Most competitions, the one who wins is the one who has more. But in a race, it's not the one who has more. It's the one who's before, right? Who crosses the finish line first. So Jesus is before you, and I know this can be a little trippy, that this can mess with our heads a little bit to wrap our brains around this, but think on it for a minute. He's gone before you into your life. He's already seen the end of your life. I attended a funeral yesterday, and I preached a funeral yesterday. And at both funerals, I was overwhelmed as these, these men, both of them were 63 years old when they died. Um, both of them, their siblings, they had just amazing testimonies about them. Man, these, these men were loved. I thought, man, I, for the first time I think I ever really thought about, what's somebody going to say at my funeral? What are my siblings going to say about me? Man, that might be a scary day. They might not say anything. Uh, sometimes it's better just to be quiet, right? I don't know what my siblings will have to say. But the reality is Jesus has already seen He's already been there. He's already seen me on the other side. He's already seen me restored. He's already seen me fully healed. He's already seen me fully exalted. He's he's before. And that's really, really hard to understand. That's really hard to wrap our brains around, but it gives you so much hope and so much peace when you can start to get a little piece of it. When you can start to just comprehend it a little bit, it's like, man, all this suffering, all this frustration, all this discouragement, all this nonsense I'm dealing with right now isn't that big of a deal because Jesus has already seen me through it. Jesus is already there. It's hard for us to comprehend, but he's before. He's before the beginning. John repeats this theme a little later in John chapter 1 in verse 30. John the Baptist is speaking, and John the Baptist says, this is the one, talking about Jesus, I meant when I said, a man who comes after me. So John was a little bit older, right? John was born before Jesus. John's ministry started before Jesus' ministry. So he said, there's somebody coming after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. He's after me, but he's before you. Can I tell you today, church, Jesus is after you. He's after your hearts. Man, he, he's after your best. He's after your future. He's after you today. And he's before you. 
And for some of us, we just blew our minds. For some of us, we'll get that later on today. It might click, I don't know. But, but man, it's powerful when you can begin to grasp that Jesus was before. He's after you, but he's also before you. Third principle we find in John chapter one that, that's so revolutionary for us is, is very simple, but it's this, is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. In verse four, it says this, it says, in him, in the word, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now understand, in the book of John, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't been resurrected yet in John chapter 1. But it's already happened long before John wrote John chapter 1. So as he writes this declaration of who Jesus was, he's going to get to that story later on in his gospel. But he's telling you, look, I've seen the light come and I've seen the darkness come against him. I've seen the darkness snuff out his life and think that it's one, but the darkness cannot overcome him. The darkness cannot hold him down. The darkness cannot hold out the light. Why is that so significant? Because we serve a victorious God, church. Sometimes I, I think modern Christians we, we, we can get so frustrated and so discouraged with culture, with our country, with politics, with things going along, around. And, and don't get me wrong, I get frustrated with those things too. But sometimes I think we forget who wins. Sometimes I think we forget our God is victorious. He's already won victory. Now, I'm going to tell you about a time I forgot. I forgot last night. Last night, was yesterday was Noah's birthday, our two-year-old. And so it was already kind of a, a weird birthday as we had church prayer and a couple funerals and the kids actually went to, to Josie Rogers' birthday party and Mel took them there. And, and so last night we were going to go celebrate by going to Whole Foods uh, so we could, we could not cheat on the fast uh, and, and get some stuff for the kids and get them some treats and, and some dessert and, and celebrate. And so we had this plan. We drove up to Whole Foods. We had like a couple detours. It was kind of a crazy things kept going wrong but we finally get to Whole Foods and we walk in and by this point we're starving right because there, there's no hunger like Daniel fast hunger right there, there, there's hunger and then there's I have not had meat or cheese or bread in a week um, I need to eat right and so we got there and we walk in and we're starving and we're ready to throw down on some Whole Foods stuff and their whole hot bar had already been shut down like nothing, nothing in sight. And we looked at each other, and Mel goes, what do you want to do? I said, what do I want to do? I said, I want to make an exception for one meal for us to eat whatever we want uh, and celebrate Noah's birthday. That's what I wanted to do, okay? She asked me what I wanted. I was honest. I told her what I wanted. Uh, and by God's grace, he gave me a wife who's stronger than me. And, and she said, I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> So thankfully, we did not give in last night, but I wanted to give in. I'm just going to be real. It's going to be real honest with you. You know, I felt defeated. We felt discouraged. We felt like, man, we just drove all this way. Uh, and of course, the first time we've ever been to Whole Foods and the hot bar shut down, right? Like every time it's always open. Uh, we serve a God of victory. Last night, Jesus had to remind me as we got in the word that he is victorious. This morning, we just saying that he's Jireh. He's enough. 
Daniel Fasters, let me encourage you this week, when you have a low moment, when you have a discouraged day, he's enough. He's enough for me to sacrifice this. He's enough for me to say, you're worthy of me honoring you in this 21-day period. He is enough, amen? And he's victorious. And if he is victorious for me, he's also victorious in me. So he's given me the strength. He's given me the ability. He's given me the power to, to walk in the things that he's calling me to. Jesus wins. Daniel fasts over in 14 days, right? Daniel fasts is a small part of our life. This point is so much bigger than that. You get discouraged next time with culture. You get frustrated with politics. You get upset about the things that are changing in our world. Remember this. It is not a lost cause. It is not over. We have a God who is at work and a God who wins. We got a lot of Eeyore Christians out there who are just going around pouting and frustrated and discouraged and talking down about everything out there. And I get it. I understand the frustration, but why do we get frustrated? We get frustrated because we look at the world instead of look at the Savior. And John says, look at Jesus. Man, Jesus is the light, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if it couldn't overcome Jesus 2,000 years ago, when the darkness put nails in his wrists and his feet, when the darkness put thorns in his skull, when the darkness took a whip to his back and ripped shreds out of his flesh 39 times, if they couldn't overcome Jesus, then the darkness can't overcome Jesus today, church. It can't overcome him on your fast. It can't overcome him just because you're a little hangry, right? Just because you're a little bit frustrated because your blood sugar is too low or, or whatever you're feeling in that moment, man. It cannot overcome Jesus. Come on, we got to remind ourselves of the God that we serve. He's victorious and the darkness cannot overcome him. I'm fired up this morning. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. John the Baptist is not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him isn't that interesting the creator the one who made everything he shows up and the thing that he made doesn't even know who he is doesn't even recognize him it would seem frustrating if I was the creator but Jesus is better than me it's good that I'm not he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Fourth powerful principle from us, for us from John chapter 1 is Jesus came to be received. That is our job to receive Jesus. It says to those who received him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's a pretty awesome right, by the way. Right? He didn't just come to forgive our sins, which, man, if he came to forgive my sins, that's more than enough. But he came to give me the right to become a child of God. And what do I have to do to become a child of God? I got to receive him. I got to accept him. 
I've got to allow him to be who he already is in my own life. I've got to receive him. And so it's our job to receive Jesus. Now, this happens obviously once at salvation, but I believe this happens over and over and over. I believe that life comes with a series of decisions. Are we going to receive Jesus? Are we going to receive his lordship? Are we going to receive his direction? Are we going to receive his correction? Are we going to receive his conviction? Are we going to receive his calling? Are we going to receive his purpose? Are we going to receive Jesus? Again and again and again, we're going to have opportunities to receive him. It's our job to receive him. What happens when we receive him? You become a child of God. He says, Miss Barbara, you're my daughter. He says, Christian, you're my son. He says, Abby, you're my daughter. Brad, you're my son, right? Insert your own name there. He calls you a child of God. What an honor. What an incredible opportunity. And all I got to do is receive him. I love Dwindle's illustration of, of going to a restaurant. Of course, he's got to talk about food. Um, <laughs> But I love this illustration of going to the restaurant where somebody pays the bill for him, and they're like, what do we do now, right? Like, what what do we do next? What are we supposed to do? Because that's almost how it is with salvation. It's like, okay, it's too good to be true. You you give me all this for nothing? Like, you paid it all, and I don't have to do anything? And the mistake we can make is we can try to get into legalism where now we try to earn that which Jesus already paid for, That's a really easy mistake for a lot of us to make. I just tell you, your Daniel fast is not earning your salvation, right? We're not calling you to read through the New Testament in 90 days so you can make it into heaven. It won't get you into heaven. You can't read through the New Testament fast enough, right? You can't fast long enough. You can't fast enough food to earn your way into heaven. It's not about earning something. It's about honoring him and allowing him to move in a new way in our lives. It's our job to receive Jesus. Two more verses for you in this section, and then we'll skip down. We're getting close. Verse 13, uh, he's talking about these children of God. He says, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He's given you a right to become a child of God, and that child of God looks a lot different than a child of man. He says you're not born the same way as others are. Obviously, this foreshadows what? John 3. He's going to have this conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. He's going to make this incredible declaration that we're all so familiar with in John 3.16. He's going to talk about how how to be born again with Nicodemus. See, we're not born the same way. Verse 14 Maybe my favorite verse in John 1, it's hard to pick a favorite, but this is the one I probably refer to the most. The word, Lagos, comes back again. What did he do? He became flesh. He incarnated, right? So this is the reference in John 1 to Christmas, to Jesus' arrival. The word became flesh, and what did he do? He made his dwelling among us. It was a, a popular app couple years ago called Among Us uh, that came out and teenagers love to play this game and Jesus is among us. Uh, one of my favorite songs, little tag by Elevation Worship declares, the king is among us. Logos, Jesus, the word became flesh and he came to be among us. Why? 
Because he loves us. Because he wants to be with us. He didn't just come to pay a price for us. He came to dwell with us. And then it says this. It says, we have seen his glory. So John's an eyewitness. He's testifying. I've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father to us. And then it says this. I love these little words right here at the end. Full of grace and truth. There's a couple traps in Christianity that, that, that we can fall into if we're, we're not careful. There's a, there's a grace trap in Christianity where, where, man, God's a God of grace. And we're just going to live in grace. We're going to extend grace. There's also a truth trap in Christianity. God's a God of truth. We're going to stand for truth. We're going we're gonna to lift up a standard of truth. We are standing on the truth, right? And why did I say those are traps? Both of those people are right. But the problem is when we choose one over the other. Jesus didn't come from the Father full of truth. He didn't come from the Father full of grace. He came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. Not 50% grace, 50% truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. And so what does it tell us as, as believers in a broken generation, in a sinful world, that God is calling us to be people who walk in extent? Dream grace, 100% grace, who extend grace time and time again, who believe in grace, who champion grace, who stand up for grace while at the same time not watering down truth, not diminishing truth, not denying truth. If we're not careful, we can pick one of those paths at the expense of the other. Jesus, praise God, did not come from the Father and choose one of those paths, but he chose them both. And there's a tension there. Between grace and truth, right? If, if you're a parent, you've weighed out this tension at some point. Am I going to extend grace or am I going to extend the rod, right? Am I going to give grace here or am I going to ground you? Am I going to give grace? Am I going to raise my voice, right? There, there, there's a tension there that we all weigh with. And so often we pick one or the other when Jesus chose both. And so my challenge for you, this is one of my, my, my core values in ministry, my core values for us, our church, is that God has called us to be people of grace and truth. That may be a lonely road in our culture. Because we can all point and we can see churches that choose truth and we can see churches that choose grace. We can see preachers who choose truth. We can see, pre see preachers who choose grace. It can be really easy to find people who champion one of those things and sell out to one of those things. God has called us to sell out to both. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. Now how do we decide which one to operate in in which moment? That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's why he's given us his Holy Spirit to help us discern, God, which one of your faces am I need to, do I need to portray right now? Which one of these things are you calling me to, to walk in in this moment? Because sometimes you won't be able to walk simultaneously in both. But Jesus did. He came full of grace, full of truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Moving forward, um, number six. Jesus does more than forgive sin. He actually takes sin away. He does more than forgive sin. He actually takes sin away. Let me show it to you. Skipping down to verse 29. It says, the next day, talking about John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Something God showed me years ago that, that I think is so powerful, that's so amazing. Uh, and he actually showed it to me in, in one of the other gospels. Um, but when Jesus heals, a couple of times in the gospels, instead of healing, he says, your sins are forgiven. Right? And you just read this this week. And the Pharisees, they freak out about that. They didn't like Jesus healing, but they really didn't like him forgiving sins. Who are you? You are not like, you know why they didn't like him forgiving sins? Because they thought they lived without sin and they liked looking down on the people who didn't. So easy for the church to become just like that. That's why we got to be full of grace. Jesus was full of grace. He forgave their sin. But you know what? That happened before he died on the cross. Think about this. Jesus came from heaven and he forgave sins before he ever paid the price for sins. So when Jesus already had the ability to forgive sins, so what did the cross do? The cross gave him the ability to destroy sin. The cross gave him the ability to break our bondage, our slavery to sin. So Jesus didn't come just to forgive my sin. He came to destroy sin in me. He came to take sin away from me. He doesn't say, behold the Lamb of God who forgives the sin of the world. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I was a bachelor, I had a a couch. I had a couple couches in my living room. I think they, I got them both for free, so they were in great condition, as you can imagine. Uh, and I remember uh, I spilled something on, on one of the couch cushions, and I, I tried like every cleaning solution in the house, which was probably like two things. Um, uh, and I could not get this stain out of my couch, right? So what did I do? Flip the cushion over. Some of y'all been there. You're my people. You don't see the stain anymore, right? The stain's gone but it was still there. And eventually that couch would get flipped back over or at some point I actually stained the other side and when I stained the other side, I forgot about the other stain so I flipped it over and I was like, oh, right? So now I got stains on both sides of the cushion. Jesus didn't come just to flip a cushion over so you can't see the sin anymore. He didn't come just to, to take the sin away. He didn't come to sweep it under the rug, you know what I'm saying? He came to eliminate it, to destroy it, to absolve it. He paid it all. He paid the price for it. My sin was as crimson, but now it is washed as white as snow. That's the Jesus that I serve. One last thing I want to show you. Skip down with me to verse 40. Powerful principle in John chapter 1. So now in John 1, Jesus is starting to recruit some disciples. He's starting to, to discover these men and, and bring them on to his team. And it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what Jesus had said and who had followed Jesus. So Jesus goes out and he's finding disciples. And he finds Andrew, which by the way, Jesus found each of us, right? He found you. And so it says that, that Andrew was found and he decided to follow Jesus. What's the first thing he did when he decided to follow Jesus? The first thing Andrew did, verse 41, was to find his brother Simon, you probably know him as Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. Last principle for you, maybe the coolest one in John chapter one is this, is that found people find people. Andrew got found. He was found by God. He was found by Jesus. He's a disciple. And what's the first thing he does? 
He goes and he starts recruiting somebody else to the team. We found the Messiah. Now notice this. He had just met Jesus, and he's already telling somebody about Jesus. You know one of the saddest things about the Christian faith is there's a lot of Christians who are bolder when they first meet Jesus to tell other people than they are when they've known Jesus for 30 years. You know why that is? Here's why I think that is. I think we forget. I think we forget what it was like to be lost. I think we forget what it was like to have that aha moment of he's real. He's true. He's for me. He loves me. See, baby Christians, they're fresh. They recognize what Jesus has done for them. They, they have no inhibitions. They have no baggage, right? They're like, oh my gosh, look, let me tell you what happened. And they go out and boldly proclaim what Jesus did for them. And yet, once we've known Jesus for a while, if we're not careful, not everybody, but some of us, we kind of lose that enthusiasm. We kind of lose that zeal to find people. I want to challenge you through the Daniel fast, through New Through 30, through this new year, to believe God to expand your heart for the lost. To remind you what it was like to be lost. To remind you what it was like to be far from Him. Because I believe if we could remember, if we could recognize what, what we, we once were, it would increase our compassion for those who are in that place. Andrew barely met Jesus, barely knew him. He met Jesus, he says, I'm following you. I'm going to be one of your disciples. I'm coming after you. But hang on just one second. I got to go get somebody else. And he went and got his brother. Because found people, find people. Who have you found lately, church? I don't say that condemning. I don't say that to put you down if the answer is nobody. If the answer is I haven't found anybody in a long time. Or even if the answer is I haven't found anybody ever. I tell you that to challenge you. Jesus found you to find somebody. You are his agent. You are his representative. You are the tool that he has chosen to bring salvation to the world. He chose us. And sometimes I look and I'm like, Jesus, you probably should have picked somebody better, right? Like, like, I don't know what you were thinking, but he picked me and he picked you. He found us and we get the opportunity to find somebody else. So I'm challenging you this week. It may not be in your, your prayer challenges, but just make it part of your prayer challenge. I'm going to find somebody. Man, who is in my world? Who's in my family? Who's in my neighborhood? Who's in my school? Who's at my workplace? Who's in my world that doesn't know Jesus? Or I'm not sure if they know Jesus. And make it your mission to find them, to bring Jesus to them, to, to allow them to know what you've known, to experience what you've experienced. John's such an awesome book. I can't wait for you guys to get to read it this week. I know most of you have probably already read it many times, right? Like it's not necessarily new material, but I believe it's going to encourage you. I believe you're going to see these principles flesh out because John 1 is written so well that almost all this stuff we talked about today, you're going to see not just in John 1, but you're going to see it throughout the book, right? You're going to see these themes repeat over and over and over. He breaks the book down into basically two sections. The, the first section shows us Jesus' miracles. There's, there's seven miracles in John. There's seven I am statements of Jesus in John. 
So you're gonna see those in the first section, I think which goes through chapter 13, it might be chapter 12. The second section is the last week of Jesus' life. John's gonna give us the, the closest picture. He's gonna zoom in the most on the last few moments of Jesus' life on earth, the last conversations he had with the disciples, the last things he did. It's powerful. Read with us, experience it with us, allow God to speak to you, and be a found person who finds somebody.